Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Thank you once again for joining us for this installment of Discovering the Old Testament. This is episode 47 in our series in which we examine the formation of the core of Jewish life, the Torah or law. You have to admit that it sounds a bit strange that we've been talking about the Old Testament for 46 sessions thus far, but this is the first time that we are really talking about the Torah as authoritative scripture. That is because there is one thing that Israel and Judaism did not have up to the moment that Ezra the scribe canonized the Torah, and that was a canon of scripture. Yes, the books of the Hebrew scriptures were around, most of them, as were many others that have been lost over time. You will find references to someone or a community that did or did not keep the law, and you have instances of writers quoting other books in order to make their point. Ezekiel quotes Leviticus frequently, for instance. But you never see anyone referring to a body of scripture the way we tend to, as a unified collection that is recognized by all parties as authoritative. We've talked a little about Ezra before, but let's review and perhaps augment what we've discussed. He was a priest and a scribe. With Persian approval and sanction, he led a second wave of Jews back from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem, only to find that the spiritual life of the Jews already had deteriorated catastrophically. To hear him tell it, there was almost no difference between the Jews and the non-Jews among whom they lived. The new generation of Jewish children had no idea of their heritage or religion. It had been Ezra's dream to repatriate himself to the covenant city, so finding it in such straits was a terrible blow to him. Luckily, Ezra was known and respected in the Persian royal court. Before his departure from Babylon, the king had appointed him as a government official with sweeping powers to appoint law officers, judges, levy fines, impose banishment, and generally impose order. The king had also given his other officers instructions to assist Ezra in his journey and the execution of his office in every way a necessary thing given the resistance to the aspirations of the Jews in Jerusalem by the Samaritans and other nearby Persian officials. The bottom line here is that Ezra found the Jewish community in desperate need of reform, and his political appointment gave him the power to make his reforms stick. We have already discussed the dissolution of marriages between Jews and pagans, and we alluded to the institution of Torah study as the central feature of Jewish religious life. This canonization of the full Torah took place around 444 BCE, when Ezra called a meeting of all the Jews in Jerusalem, where they heard the Torah read and agreed to abide by it. But there is an interesting side note. Not only was the Torah read, there were people standing by to help explain to the people the meaning of certain passages. This might not seem like a big deal, but it marks a very important change. With the canonization of the Torah, we are now in an age of Scripture. Scripture demands interpretation. 
It has authority. You must take it seriously. To make matters more interesting, the new text has places that are vague or even flat-out contradictory. Did Ezra realize that there were these kinds of problems in the text? Of course he did. He was a scribe, after all. He could probably have recited the entire Torah from memory. In fact, in Ezra's speech to the Great Assembly, in which he summarizes the sacred history between God and the Israelites, he tacitly acknowledges some of these problems, conflating some differing accounts in some cases and simply ignoring other contradictions in others. Ezra apparently understood the use of the law in a way that is different from how we think of such things in our world. We've said before that the Hebrew scriptures are a record of failure, but this is the first time that we see those writings applied in this context, namely as a bulwark against that kind of failure happening again, and as an open-ended exercise in personal and national introspection to that end. To put it another way, Scripture is not a record of events, but a series of theological lessons. Rather than toss this new Torah because it was difficult to understand, Judaism gradually developed a deep and unbelievably rich body of interpretive literature that ranged from straight-up commentaries to actual rewritings of some books of Scripture to reflect different points of view, some of them wildly different from the original. The Genesis Apocryphon found at Qumran is such a document. For example, it changes the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Abimelech so that Abraham becomes the good guy instead of the less-than-praiseworthy character he is in the Genesis versions of the story. Other bodies of interpretive literature are the Midrash, a huge body of stories covering every imaginable aspect of mundane and spiritual life, with each story using some point of scripture as a platform from which to make its point. There were, of course, translations, such as the Septuagint for Greek-speaking Jews living mostly in Egypt, and the Targums that rendered scripture into Aramaic for Palestinian Jews who no longer spoke Hebrew as their first language. The Talmud is a massive body of legal and cultural opinion intending to help flesh out and extend the Torah's legal and ethical essentials to areas that it does not cover. The point is that prior to the canonization of the Torah, there was no such body of interpretive literature as we understand it, nor was the study of holy literature considered an act of worship. This means, among other things, that the average Jew was expected to have at least a nominal grounding in the ethical and theological underpinnings of their religion. I do believe that this may be the earliest example in human history of a religious entity that demanded this level of theological knowledge on the part of its adherents. Besides this new innovation called scripture, we begin to see the beginnings of Judaism as a religion in our modern sense of the word. Now that might seem like a silly thing to say, of course Judaism was a religion, always was, but it is not that simple. You can search the Hebrew scriptures from end to end, and you will not find a single reference to religion or use of the word Judaism. In fact, there was no word for it in ancient Hebrew. 
There was no such word corresponding to our word religion, meaning a system of beliefs, in Greek, Roman, Egyptian, or any other ancient religious context. Even the Hindu Sanskrit literature, which has many more subtle shadings of meaning than you will find anywhere else, did not have a word for religion. What we call religion was just normal life. The term Judaism, in fact, first shows up in the book of Second Maccabees, a product of the intertestamental period, and even then it wasn't so much about a system of beliefs as a way of life. What does this have to do with the Torah? Torah study engendered the need to explore and make decisions about the whys and wherefores behind a law or judgment, to understand the reasoning behind it, before one could extend that reasoning into other parts of personal and community life. There is another aspect of this new emphasis on Torah study that is easy to miss in our less stratified society, and that is the highly democratic nature of Torah study. In many other spiritual traditions, the sacred texts are not for the eyes of the average worshiper. The right to read them freely was the prerogative of the priesthood alone. But the Torah was to be read aloud, frequently, and to all. Deuteronomy 31, 10-13 states, And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time of the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you will read this law before all Israel and in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the works of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. This is really very unusual, but also very much in character. We mentioned some time back how in the Israelite sacrificial system, the sacrifices were conducted out in the open where everyone could watch, not hidden in some inner courtyard or room for the priestly elite alone. Josephus bragged that unlike most other adherents of other systems of worship, the Jews actually read their sacred texts. There is also a pretty strong scholarly consensus that when the synagogues first appeared after the destruction of the first temple, their role was as a place for the public reading uh, from the law on the Sabbath. This use predates even the use of synagogue as a place for common prayer. But to return to the Torah and its newly acquired centrality in Jewish life, a kind of superstructure grew up around it in addition to the synagogue. It took a little while before the culture adjusted to an absolute authority in the form of a text and the implications of it. The belief developed that with the canonization of the Torah, the age of prophecy had ceased. 
the Torah was the final word, and there was no more need for the supplemental prophetic voice in order to know the will of God. One consequence of this belief is that during the intertestamental period, those who felt inspired to write new scripture did so by writing under the name of a famous religious figure, Solomon, Abraham, Enoch, etc., thus presenting a new and allegedly newly discovered writing from the time before the end of prophecy. These books are what scholars call pseudepigrapha, which means falsely written, or perhaps more accurately, falsely attributed. Some of these found their way into the Christian Apocrypha. Others, while not classed as scripture, continued to exert considerable influence. Given this penchant for reading and interpretation, those who were particularly adept at reading and understanding the Torah became revered figures. The Torah scholar was an early precursor and adjunct to the rise of the rabbi clerical class and the parties of the Sadducees and Pharisees. Transmission of the text was also of great concern. The text of the Torah was considered unalterable, which led to the expansion of a class of scribes who specialized in creating accurate copies of Torah scrolls. Obviously, there had always been scribes for copying Holy Writ. Ezra himself was a scribe, in addition to being a priest. But now they took on a new importance, almost as a separate part of the larger religious life, as guardians of the Holy Text. And since the commandment to study Torah eventually came to carry more weight than all the other commandments, it fueled a tradition of intellectual activity and scholarship that continues to be a bedrock of Jewish culture to this day. One problem that invariably crops up when someone tries to close the canon to any further development is that it soon becomes apparent that the canon by itself is inadequate to answer every question. Usually a large body of commentary grows up alongside the central text, as happened in association with the Torah. A less common response is to decide that perhaps the canon needs to include more material, more books. This need became particularly acute in Judaism of late antiquity, where the world in which the Jews found themselves was every bit as chaotic, confusing, and perilous as it was before the fall of the First Temple, and for quite a few of the same reasons, such as foreign domination, social injustice, income inequality, and rampant corruption. In addition, despite the restoration of Jerusalem as a center of Jewish life, the Jews as a people were scattered all over the place, and did not have access to the new temple. And yet, in spite of that, the cultural bedrock provided by the Torah and its study allowed Jewish communities to thrive in place, and also to maintain their connections and ties with each other. In fact, it was arguably the first distributed religious community of its kind in history. The ecology of ideas at that time was arguably beyond anything uh, the Jews and their ancestors had had to contend with. It was widely believed, for instance, that the oppressive efforts by the Seleucid emperor to stamp out Jewish worship paled in comparison with the threat posed by the flood of Greek thinking that proliferated throughout the Hellenistic world. 
When one is faced with a dangerous idea, often the best defense is another set of ideas. For the Jews, the Torah served that purpose. Not only was it a reservoir of ideas to set against the outside religion and philosophy, it is itself just inconsistent enough to invite discussion and debate into the meaning or use of what was written there. I believe that accepting and learning to work with that inconsistency and ambiguity was a huge advantage to the Jews who, along with everyone else, had to live in an inconsistent and ambiguous world. The Torah was also something the Jews could take with them and integrate it into their community, no matter how far they were from Jerusalem and its temple. In fact, it allowed them to preserve their religious identity when there was no temple. But while the Torah proved necessary, it was not sufficient, as the saying goes. Attempting to apprehend and anticipate the problems that crop up in a complex society by means of a set of fixed rules is doomed to fail. The interpretive tradition that grew up around the Torah helped to mitigate this by adding more options and addressing specific problems not explicitly covered in the Torah. But it was not enough. Israel's history prior to the loss of the first temple was marked by the failure of the people to live the law, but also the success of an external prophetic tradition to see, understand, and offer solutions that were outside the reach of the legal system. Eventually it became clear that these prophetic voices needed to join those of the legates and legalists in the canon. Join us when we will learn more about the expansion of the Jewish canon to include the prophets and other voices next time. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.